I'm the BBC's one-show astronomer, Mark Thompson, and I learned everything I know about stargazing from the Jodcast. I learned everything I know about stargazing from the Jodcast? <laughs> Shocking. The Jodcast. We love Wales almost as much as Kate Middleton. With Megan Argo, John Field, Melanie Jean, Jen Gupta, Stuart Lowe, Kat Maguire, Ian Morrison and Mark Berber. The Jodcast. May 2011 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Jen and joining me today I've got Melanie, Mark and Kat. Hi guys. Hello. Hello. So this edition's witty comment is courtesy of Mark who may have to explain it for some of our listeners. Yeah, well, we went to Wales for the National Astronomy Meeting and... Kate Middleton's marrying Prince William, whose surname is kind of Wales. <laughs> so I guess she loves Wales as well, and so did we. And there was I, I heard that uh, they were going to move to some house in Wales as their first, you know, married couple house. So. so it's a witty comment with many, many layers. Almost too clever to be funny. <laughs> So we've got a lot to cram into this episode, and that means we're going to have to keep this chatter to a minimum, unfortunately. Boo. Boo. But we should mention that, as Mark said, we've been at the National Astronomy Meeting, which was held in Clendidno in North Wales. Well, we. We. I didn't go. Yeah, Kat didn't go. I'm really upset. It sounded like it was loads of fun. And Mark only turned up for half a day, but Melanie and I were there. I wasn't supposed to be there at all, but then, yeah, I unexpectedly turned up. Well, you came for the pub. (laughs) <laughs> Isn't that why most people go to that? Yeah, but you really came for the pub. It's called networking. <laughs> anyway, keeping this brief, in the show this time, we have interviews from the DOT Astronomy Conference and the first of our interviews from the National Astronomy Meeting, and we find out what you can see in the night sky in May. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month... A roundup of some stories from the 2011 National Astronomy Meeting, held in the town of Llandudno in North Wales during April, where almost 500 astronomers from around the UK came together for a week to present and discuss the latest results. Of all the planets so far discovered orbiting other stars, most are large gas giants orbiting close to their hosts, since these are the easiest to detect with current observational techniques. But the team at the University of Leicester have found a way of potentially spotting planets orbiting at far larger distances from their parent stars. Gas giants in our own solar system orbit further from the Sun than rocky planets like the Earth. While such planets have big surface areas and reflect large amounts of sunlight, making them bright in the visual part of the spectrum, they also emit strongly at radio wavelengths. Both Jupiter and Saturn have been detected by radio telescopes. Each planet hosts many moons, some of which are volcanically active, such as Io orbiting Jupiter and Saturn's moon Enceladus. Ionized gas escaping from these active moons is drawn towards the parent planets and produces aurora, much like that seen on the Earth at high latitudes. These aurora emit radio waves which can be detected here on Earth. At the National Astronomy Meeting, Dr Jonathan Nichols from the University of Leicester presented the results of a study which predicts that radio emission from similar auroral activity on extrasolar planets should be detectable by low-frequency radio telescopes such as LOFAR, currently under construction in the Netherlands and due to be completed later this year. Nichols predicts that the technique could detect Jupiter-like planets orbiting a parent star at up to 50 times the distance between the Earth and the Sun, the stars up to 150 light-years from the Earth, and may help find solar systems which resemble our own. 
While Pluto may now be classified as a dwarf planet, it is still massive enough to have an atmosphere. Although less dense than the Earth's, Pluto's atmosphere was already known to be 100 kilometres thick, but new results from a team led by Dr Jane Greaves at the University of St Andrews in Scotland have not only discovered carbon monoxide for the first time, but have also found that the atmosphere stretches as high as 3,000 kilometres, a quarter of the way out to Pluto's largest moon, Charon. At such large distances from Pluto, the outer layers of the atmosphere are easily stripped away by the solar wind. Located in the far reaches of the solar system, Pluto's atmosphere is very cold, about minus 220 degrees centigrade, and much of the dwarf planet's surface is covered in ice, essentially frozen out from what atmosphere there is. The signal of carbon monoxide has been searched for before, but this is the first time it has been detected. These new results, from observations made with the 15-metre James Clark Maxwell Telescope in Hawaii, show the signal due to carbon monoxide gas is twice as strong as the previous upper limit obtained by another team using the 30-metre IRAM telescope 11 years ago. The only other gas to have been identified in Pluto's atmosphere is methane, which has also been seen to vary over timescales of several years. The changes seen in the carbon monoxide signal may be because the atmosphere has grown, or there may have been an increase in the amount of CO in the atmosphere due to an increase in temperature as Pluto made a close approach to the Sun in 1989. Science fiction stories are often set on planets with twin suns, but how might this kind of environment affect life on such a planet? A UK-based team, including PhD student Jack O'Malley-James from the University of St Andrews, have studied what plants might look like on an Earth-like planet with two or three suns. The temperature of a star determines its colour, and therefore the light available for photosynthesis. But in a binary star system, the two stars may well have different temperatures, and hence colours. Small, dim red dwarf stars are the most common type of star in our galaxy, and are often found in binary or multiple systems with other red dwarfs, or with stars more like our Sun. The team looked at what kind of plants might evolve on planets in a variety of binary or triple star systems, and found that plants in a system containing a red dwarf star may appear black to our eyes, absorbing across the entire visible wavelength range in order to use as much of the available light as possible. And finally, high school students have been helping uncover the peculiar behaviour of a rare type of X-ray binary system. A team of astronomers based in Wales and the Netherlands have used eight telescopes simultaneously to study an X-ray binary known as IGR J00291 plus 5934, a system containing an ordinary star and a pulsar, a neutron star spinning several hundred times a second. Only 12 examples of such a binary system are currently known. While they are often observed to go through outbursts where they increase dramatically in brightness both optically and in the X-ray part of the spectrum for between a month and a few years, this particular binary has displayed a more unusual type of outburst. Having been in outburst for 20 days, 00291 faded back to its original brightness before rebrightening again within a month. As well as using space-based X-ray telescopes and large optical telescopes, the team had the help of several school groups who made observations of the system using the Fox telescopes, a pair of 2-metre optical telescopes set up for use by school groups. In X-ray binary systems, material from the star spirals in towards the pulsar, forming an accretion disk. Friction and gravity heat this material until it reaches temperatures of millions of degrees and emits X-rays. Outbursts are thought to be driven by the emptying of the accretion disk, so the time between outbursts indicates the time it takes to fill the disk, and the size of the disk itself. But for a system the size of 00291, it is unlikely that the disk could be refilled in as little as 30 days. The suggestion is that the outburst is all one event, that was interrupted halfway through by a propeller effect, ejecting material from the system and stopping the outburst. 
Once the propeller switches off, material begins to fall inwards again, and the outburst continues. These results are part of a larger project involving optical monitoring of 32 low-mass X-ray binaries by groups using the Fox telescopes, located in Hawaii and Australia. Thanks for that, Megan. Now, as we said at the beginning of the show, we have interviews from two different conferences in this show. Uh, most of you will know what the National Astronomy Meeting is, but you may be unfamiliar with dot astronomy. So here's Stuart to tell us a bit more about dot astronomy and introduce those interviews. Hello and welcome to New College in Oxford. I'm here at the Dot Astronomy Conference, and attending this conference are a group of nearly 50 astronomers from all over the world. They've all got an interest in using the internet and technology to do interesting things with astronomy. There are various talks and workshops and discussions, and there's general creativity going on here. So I caught up with a few of those attending to find out what they've been up to. I'm now joined by Dr. Jill Tarter, who's the director of the Centre for SETI Research at the SETI Institute. Hello. I think I got that right. You got that perfectly right. And welcome to the Jodcast again. You've you were last on Jodcast uh, in September two thousand two thousand and seven, I think it was. Yes, and that was Adjodel. Yeah, that was for the the Modern Radio Universe conference. We talked about the Allen Telescope Array, which was just I think getting going then. What's the update on on the Allen Telescope Array? Well, the Allen Telescope Array actually started full time observing uh, in two thousand and seven, and it's been a fantastic success. We're really pleased with how the telescope's performing. the um, The only problem is keeping it running, so we're having a problem finding uh, operating funds. But in that intervening period, what I've been able to do, thanks to some really nice donations from Dell and Intel of enterprise servers, been able to throw away all of the custom and semi-custom hardware we've built over all these years to do our signal processing and put it into software only. Right. So given that, now we can ask the world to come help us. And it's been a really interesting transition to uh, think about leaving our silos and opening this up and inviting the world in and doing our business in a different way. Yep. So uh, quite a few years ago, a project called SETI at Home started um, which allowed people's computers to process spare cycles um, to look through SETI data. The more recent things in letting people look at data are slightly different from that, aren't they? That, that's right. SETI at Home was fantastic because it, it put distributed computing on the map and got a lot of people donating cycles to do service computing. Um, but it was a question of, um, or an opportunity to install and forget. Yeah. They put it on their computers, they walked away, they didn't think about SETI after that. We want to get people thinking about what we're doing, why we should be doing it, how they can help, and actually using their brains to, to uh, do pattern recognition for us. Mm. So how does this vary from citizen science projects like Zooniverse, which they provide you with an image and you click a few buttons? Are there similar things to that? Well, we're hoping that this will become a Zooniverse project. We uh, we have a prototype that's been built by Francis Potter and the Hathersedge Group um, on a mobile Android platform, and we now want to make it into a Zooniverse program. And it will be um, the same and different, right? We'll be asking people to find patterns in noise and tell us what they see, tell us whether they see it in multiple images at the same time. But the, the thing that's different is we're going to want people to do this in real time mm. so that we can find the uh, signals or they can find the signals that we're missing and get that information back to the telescope in a few minutes right. so we can follow up. And that's, that's a puzzle or a piece of the problem that none of the other uh, Zooniverse projects solve, having to close a loop in real time. 
And what are the data rates for, for the telescope data? Oh, the telescope data is pretty amazing. The raw data rate is 100 terabytes a day. So it's um, 3.4 gigabits per second per polarization per beam uh, coming <laughs> off the... 100 terabytes is a huge amount. People might have a terabyte hard disk these days, but that's equivalent to 100 of those a day. That's, that's right. And, and so... Hence, we have never been storing our data. We built right. processors that could go through it fast enough, and they found what we told them to look for. So we had a discussion earlier today about whether you should just save all data because you can go back and reprocess it. But to do that realistically means that in the future, if I'm thinking about doing this, in the future my reprocessing is going to have to happen much faster than real time, mm. or I'm just going to be forever behind and never get it reprocessed. Right. And another way people can get involved, if they are signal processing experts or computer experts, I think they can also contribute, can't they? They can, indeed. We're um, Anyone who's, I don't know when this is going to air, but if it airs before the 8th of April, right, we have a Google Summer of Code uh, couple of projects going on this summer that they can apply for. If not this summer, then next summer. We really want to get people who understand um, modern communication theory, who understand good processing practices for uh, finding signals and noise, and once the human eyeballs begin to, to show us what we should be looking for, we need help building good programs to find it even better. Right. If people want to get involved, where do they go? Uh-huh. SetiQuest.org. It's a nice simple address, it's and they can easy. download Android and iPhone apps, I think? They can download from, well, you can find the link at SetiQuest.org, okay. but explorer.org setiquest.org is a place to log in and uh, try and beta test the uh, equipment or the new program and then our source codes at GitHub so they can download that and see if they can make that better too or use it for something else Uh, and if people want to donate to help the search for extraterrestrial intelligence go on that's that's the easiest one there's a big (laughs) donate button on seti.org Jill Tata, thank you very much for talking to us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, and invite me back in another five years or four years, whatever the cycle is. I'm sure we will. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay, I'm joined by Professor David Hogg, who's Professor of Physics at New York University. Welcome to the Jodcast. Thank you. And you're one of the people behind the amazing service called astrometry.net. Can you just tell us what astrometry.net is? So uh, astrometry.net is a system that can take any image, and if that image is an image of the night sky, it figures out where what stars are in the image and where that image aligns on the sky. So it basically recognizes astronomical images and tells you what's in them. Right, and it's live on the internet at the moment. It's currently people, if they put their pictures on Flickr in a certain group, they can have them analyzed, can't they? That's right. So in, in, there's an astrometry group on Flickr, and if you search for it, you'll find uh, thousands of images. And uh, uh, those are images that uh, astrophotographers have posted on Flickr, and then by adding them to the group, it alerts an unmanned robot that we have that goes into Flickr, downloads the image, calibrates it or recognizes it, and then it tags the image with the objects it contains. 
which is really good because sometimes people they don't necessarily know all the things in the field that they've they've taken pictures of so it's useful in that if nothing else indeed so some people many of the people who put it in of course know all about their images they're very very capable uh, astrophotographers often however there's an object that they don't really know what it is and there, there's a nebula that they see and they're not sure what it is and and our system will just circle it and tag it right on their uh, image can you just give us a, a little simple from a starter's point of view how does it actually work out which stars are which so the, the general problem of taking an image and figuring out what it's an image of is an extremely hard problem. It's not a solved problem, and that's oh, the it's subject. solved by human brain. <laughs> it is, well, good. It's not a solved problem when it comes to computers. Yep. And, uh, uh, but the astronomy case is simpler because the, uh, the sky, the night sky, is peppered with stars, which are like points of light. And so all we have to do is measure the locations of the points of light in the image and then compare that the locations we have to patterns of stars we know about. And because astronomy has been going on uh, for the last 20,000 years, we know a lot about the patterns of stars that there are on the sky. And so the system is essentially a pattern matching system. It uses sort of uh, probabilistic inference things, but it is basically a pattern matching system that matches patterns we see in the image to patterns we know about on the sky. At the conference this week, you've been telling us some of the interesting things you can then start to do once you've gone through thousands upon thousands of images and worked out where they are in the sky. You, you've recently published a paper on AstroPH um, about looking at comet homes. Yeah, so there's several applications for this. You know, part of the reason we did this is because it was fun, uh, for sure. But but um, but one of the applications is we can take images that people have posted on the internet for whatever reason, for fun, because they're showing off, or because they have something beautiful to share with their friends, and take that those images and use them as scientific data. So what we did in the case of Comet Holmes is we searched for images on the web. Uh, of Comet Holmes, and we we use the astrometry.net service to uh, calibrate them, to recognize where they are in the sky, and then we use the locations of those images on the sky as a trace of the comet's orbit. And we found that just from looking at where astrophotographers had been pointing their telescopes, we were able to infer the gravitational orbit that Comet Holmes is on in the solar system. It was a fairly impressive plot when you showed you, you did some incredible overlay of all of the images showing the, the comet as it moved um, through space, and then you overlaid the actual the orbital elements so you could see the actual path, and it was amazing how well they lined up on there. It's amazing. It really shows... It showed a number of interesting... We were really surprised by how well it worked, and we were able to measure the properties of Comet Holmes to a few percent. And one of the reasons is that there's just an enormous number of very capable uh, astrophotographers in the world who are just taking beautiful photos. And uh, they have... They use very good equipment, and they use very good practices. So there's just beautiful data on the web. Another factor, of course, is that Comet Holmes in 2007 went through a huge event in which it brightened by 10 magnitudes from a very faint deep sky object into a naked eye object. And that really created a lot of interest. So one of the reasons the project worked so well is just that the comet itself is a really interesting object. Yep. What, what's the next step for astrometry.net? So there's other that that Common Homes project was a fun use of astrometry done, but there's lots of other uses. One of the main motivating reasons we built the system was to recover historical data. There's a lot of historical data in plate archives that stretch back for more than a hundred years. Uh, and there's a lot of interesting astronomical phenomena that take place on century timescales. Mm. But it's very hard for astronomers to 
to do those measurements because they uh, they don't know how to find the data they're looking for in the archives. But if we astrometry.net kind of just naturally uh, calibrates, classifies, and makes searchable all the information in historical archives. So a lot of what we're interested in is kind of building a history of the sky that goes back to the beginning of photography. Mm-hmm. Another general sort of category of activity is uh, serving new missions. New astronomy missions often get into situations where they have lost control of their telescope. Think of space telescopes or balloon-borne telescopes. And astrometry.net is a way of solving what's known as the lost-in-space problem, the problem that your satellite is spinning out of control and you don't know where you're looking. It's still collecting data and you just don't know where it's actually looking on the sky. Yes, exactly. So, for instance, we had a... There's a UV... uh, uh, balloon uh, telescope whose um, mount broke, so it was just spinning, <laughs> and we were able to figure out what where it was pointed at all times by calibrating it with astrometry.net, and then the team thought they had no data, but after we calibrated a bunch of it, the data became useful for science. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for explaining all about astrometry.net. If people want to add their pictures to the astrometry.net Flickr group, then we advise them to go and do that right now, and then hopefully your robot will tell them where they're looking. So thank you very much. That's what it'll do. Thank you very much. That was great. Okay, I'm now joined by Dr. Meg Schwamm from Yale, and she's the project scientist on Planet Hunters. Welcome to the Jodcast, Meg. Hi, thanks. And can you just tell us a little bit about Planet Hunters? It's a Zooniverse project, but tell tell our listeners what it's about. Absolutely. So um, NASA has launched the Kepler spacecraft, and it has been sitting and staring at the same part of the sky since March 2009. And Kepler's been staring at this field in the hopes of finding extrasolar planets. And so the way that this is done is with the transit technique. And so you're watching the, the... the planet go in front of its star and dim some of the starlight. And by that dimming, we can we see the signature of the planet and we get an estimate of its radii. And, and if we see multiple dips, that means we can get an estimate of the period. And so this is what the Kepler's been doing. It's been staring at this field and there's all this data. And the Kepler team and their computers have been rigorously analyzing this data, searching for transit patterns using automated routines. But at Planet Hunters, we think that there are things that human beings can do better than machines and that there may be transit signals that only human beings will be able to detect. And so teamed up with Yale, Adler Planetarium, and the Zooniverse, and, and Oxford, we, are, we developed Planet Hunters. So you can go to planethunters.org. And you can sign up, and you can look at the Kepler light curves and actually try to detect and see if in the light curves you see a transit. And if you do, you can mark a box around it and classify it. And we ask you a few other questions about the star, if it's variable, and then you can submit that to us. And so we have users typically um, looking through the data. And so um, we've gotten the first quarter of the data, um, which was released in June 2010, the first 30 days of the Kepler mission, and we finished that in about a month. And... um, we launched in December 2010, and so the, the project's still going on. We have the, the next 90 days of the Kepler data that were released on February 2nd, and um, we're now starting to look at these classifications and what they tell us. We have 22,000 users all over the world, and we've, done, we've marked over 2 million classifications are, have been done by these users. So it's really been incredible response to this project. 
that's that's pretty impressive and people by doing this they they'll be the first people probably to have seen this data of this planet going around another star they'll be the, they'll be the first people to identify that there's a planet there and i think that's really amazing that you're the first person to know that there's another world out there that's not ours now it's really hard to go from a planet candidate to a, a full-fledged planet and it requires lots of other observations with ground-based telescopes like rate of velocity but you know it's on the way to getting there and so we, we've started a candidate list from our quarter one the first quarter data and it's on our website and we list those users who identify it um, and as of today we're launching the planetometer and so you can you can find it on planethunters.org website and it shows there the number of live classifications and we're streaming the our planet candidates and their the users who who detected them that's happening today it'll be launched later um today and uh it's a great project and the out the response has been great and we're so grateful for everybody who's analyzing the data and and how many planets have been found so far we have about 69 planet candidates in our, our first um run through of the data and we're doing we're, we're looking we're doing more um sophisticated ways of sorting the database now but we have our, our first cuts have about 69 planet candidates and potentially 47 of those are not on the kepler false positive list their planet candidates list or their eclipse of eclipsing binary so stars that are they're going in front of their 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 parent star but aren't planets right. so we may so we're, we're trying to actively follow those up and see if any of those are are full-fledged planets well, that's great. We wish you the best of luck and all of your users in finding as many planets as possible in the Kepler data. Yeah, great. And if anyone wants to go to the site, again, it's planethunters.org. Very good. Thank you very much. Thanks. On the Tuesday of Dot Astronomy, we had Hack Day, where people dispersed into different groups and worked on different projects. One of those is Rob Hollow from CSIRO Astronomy and Space Science in Australia. Hi, Rob. Hi. How are you, Stuart? Okay, and can you just tell us quickly about the project that you worked on? Yeah, so we were working on a thing called Eavesdropping from Parks, uh, and uh, as part of the uh, Pulsar Parks project, uh, we uh, have students observing um, pulsars in real time using the 64-metre Parks telescope. We've got a uh, live web monitor where the data streams out, and we thought it would be really interesting to sort of see other ways of interacting with that data, apart from the visual. So we were using uh, software we learned on the Monday to go and try and see if we can get some sounds and how that sounds uh, across some of the different data uh, windows that come out. So it was a, a lot of fun. And so, so what exactly did, did the interface look like that you came up with? I mean, it was a very limited amount of time, so it's not going to be very polished. Yeah. But. Well, we haven't got so much of an interface at the moment, but basically we just took some uh, examples of screen grabs of some of the images from the data that we've got, and uh, we're seeing how they sound using these, uh, the, this uh, software. But ultimately, it would be really nice and something we can work on over the next few months to take it, and uh, so that perhaps whilst the data's coming live, you'll be able to um, click on a window, go on the web browser, and move the little cursor across and actually hear what the so sound So it, it was actually when you moved your cursor that the sounds appeared, yeah. and it converted the radio astronomy data into sound. So That's that right. Well, it's actually taking the signal from the JPEG. We saved it as a JPEG. As you move it across, you, you get the different sounds and the different intensity. So we were playing with when we got some radio frequency interference on the different types of data and seeing if we've got any interesting sounds. So it's a work in progress. We've got lots, to, lots more to play with, but it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's good, and I enjoyed the one where, you, as you moved your mouse around, it sounded like R2-D2. Uh, yeah, it's a real sci-fi sound in, in, in uh, keeping with the, uh, the theme. All right, thank you very much. We'll let you get back to the conference. Thanks, Stuart. As well as the sonification of the parks data, another group created Chromatone, which is a project that converted multi-wavelength astronomical images into multi-frequency musical tones. 
There were also projects that worked on SETIQuest data. There was a project to annotate and dissect astronomical papers. And there was even a song and video about Pluto. Now, also at the conference, we had a demonstration of Microsoft's Worldwide Telescope using a Kinect controller as the interface. With the conference being so busy, the only chance I had to talk to the speaker was as he was leaving on the final day. Okay, I'm here on the third day at Dot Astronomy, and I'm joined by Jonathan Fay from Microsoft Research. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, how are you? And we're walking with Jonathan to his bus because he has to go back to the US. Um, but we're going to find out from him about Microsoft's Worldwide Telescope. So, Jonathan, tell us what Worldwide Telescope is. Worldwide Telescope is a collaboration between Microsoft Research and a bunch of universities and uh, organizations like NASA and uh, other space agencies from other uh, different uh, national space programs uh, to basically put as much of the universe online. So we have like from sub-meter resolution on Earth and Mars all the way to the large-scale structure of the universe beyond the galaxy. And all of this data is based on real science data, but it's done in such a way that's not just useful for researchers, but for the rest of the general public and for educators to be able to make use of it. And it's all free, and it's all online. I know you've been showing us some demos here at Dot Astronomy, and they've been amazing to see. You've, you've been overlaying data of earthquakes on the Earth. You've been flying out through the planets and out into um, intergalactic space and seeing the SDSS data and all sorts of things. It's, it's pretty impressive stuff. Well, it's um, being able to actually bring your own data in is something that makes uh, Worldwide Telescope uh, a very interesting package because we're we're able to make use of uh, all of this background information that's been collected by public agencies and universities and such, but you're also able to bring in whatever's personal to you, whether you're a scientist or a student, the stuff you're interested in, you can bring that in and view that anywhere in the universe. The latest thing that you demoed yesterday was using a Microsoft Connect to interface with Worldwide Telescope. Just tell us a little bit about that. Well, when you have such a vast amount of data, and a lot of it is complicated in 3D, and being able to actually manipulate the data smoothly and interactively in a completely fluid way was just something that, you know, we tried to do with, uh, you know, like Xbox controller or mice. Uh, Oh, just hang on. And at that point, unfortunately, I had to jump in front of the coach that was to take him to the airport. So, unfortunately, that interview got cut short there. But the demo he gave us showing a Kinect controlling worldwide telescope on a projector screen was amazing to see. He was using his hands and his arms to control the universe. And it was, it was really like being in Star Trek's astrometrics lab or being in Minority Report, but without needing the gloves. This demo had only just been hacked together before the conference, so it isn't yet ready for general use, but it gives us a taste of what will soon be possible. So I hope I've given you a little taste of Dot Astronomy. I'm certainly looking forward to the next one. And thanks for listening, and back over to the studio. Thanks for that, Stuart. Uh, Now, here's some of the interviews from Nam. Okay, so I'm here at NAM with John Womersley, who is chair of the SKA board. Yes, hello. Um, Okay, so tell us the latest news on the SKA. Okay, so there was a big series of meetings at the um, Italian Astrophysics uh, Institute in Rome over the last month, uh, where nine countries signed an agreement to go to the next phase of SKA. 
It doesn't mean SKA is going to be built, but it means they're going to take the best steps to put the money in place and do the project engineering phase, which is about the next three or four years. And the UK has the budget uh, to contribute to that, and we're looking to help and support other countries to get the funding for their contributions to this as well. Um, so we set up at Rome a founding board. We all signed a letter of intent to be part of this, and I got the uh, privilege of chairing that board, which means there's a fair amount of work to be done now uh, in setting up the project office. We located, we did, made a decision to locate the project office at Jodrell Bank Observatory in Cheshire, so that's very good for the UK, but it's good for SKA as well, because that's a place with a lot of expertise, a lot of technical capability in radio astronomy, and that's what we need for the next phase. Um, we are going forward then to staff that project office, to move the existing people from the um, project development office at the University of Manchester out to Jodrell Bank. A new building needs to be put up. We need to hire a new director because Richard Skilitsi, the current guy, is planning to retire in a year or so. Uh, we have to get the project funding in place, which is up to 90 million euros to cover the engineering phase of the project for the next four or five years. And we have to do the project engineering. Um, we want to get to the point of setting up a new legal entity, so something like SKA Limited, um, later this year if we can. That's an ambitious target, and that's uh, what we're working on now. So the goal is by a year from now, we should have an SKA um, legal entity, a company which is employing people with international shareholders with the goal of pushing the project forward uh, over the next three or four years. Um, by, again, about a year from now, we should be looking at having chosen a site for the telescope array, either in South Africa or Australia. And um, we hope that this is, is part of the process of getting much more momentum uh, and international support behind the project. So um, I think this was a, it was a very good month for SKA so far in April. And uh, the good news, of course, means that there's a great deal of work to be done now, but uh, we're all looking forward to doing it. Okay, so at the moment, both of the, the sites, Southern Africa and the Australian-New Zealand site, they've both got telescopes being built on them at the moment. Um, so do you know anything about the latest progress with those? That's right. So both of these um, Pathfinder instruments, um, ASCAP and uh, Meerkat, are making good progress. Um, the, I visited the South African site about 18 months ago. Dishes were being rolled out already at that point, and now there's, there's many more. Um, so they're getting to the point now of doing astronomy on, on both locations, and obviously this is something that's of great interest to both, uh, both of the candidate hosts anyway. Um, and we hope that it provides a firm basis for, for SKA as well. So a lot of the technology development that we want to do uh, for SKA links into what's being achieved with those pathfinders, and also with other projects like eMerlin and LOFAR as well. Right, so the SK site decision should be made in 2012. Mm -hmm. um, when are the first antennas expected to be on the ground? Uh, we are looking at a start of construction in something like 2016, 2015, perhaps, depending on funding and technical progress. Uh, and roll out, um, because it's an interferometer, the first dishes will be able to do science, of course, as soon as there's enough. Um, so towards the, the end of this decade, uh, science from phase one of SKA. Right, and will they be um, capable of being linked into existing arrays? There are some fairly ambitious plans to not just use SKA as a standalone instrument, but to link it to existing telecommunications dishes or other existing arrays, which might even include dishes in the UK. So, uh, yes, the, the scientists are certainly thinking along those lines, and that, that does open up the possibility of a truly global project, which will be exciting. Fantastic. Thank you very much for Thank talking you. to us. So I'm here with Dr Bob Forsyth from Imperial College London. Welcome to the Jobcast. Thank so you. you do work on the sun, and I thought we could start with um, what is a solar cycle? Well, 
the solar cycle can be measured in many ways, but in fact it was properly discovered, and I think about the 18th century, by astronomers who were counting dark spots on the sun, known as sunspots. Um, and it was discovered that the number of these varied in an 11-year cycle. And later on it was discovered that um, sort of if, uh, more violent events on the sun, such as solar flares, um, occurred more commonly when the number of these sunspots were high, leading to the sort of notion that uh, every 11 years... Uh, the sun is more active for a while, lots more solar flares, lots more eruptions of material into space. And then on the other half of the cycle, the sun can become very quiet. So what is a sunspot? Essentially, it's a dark spot <laughs> on the visible surface of the sun. But okay. to be slightly more technical, it is a region where very intense magnetic fields uh, emerge through the solar surface. And... Um, as a result, uh, heat which comes from below the surface on the rest of the sun is inhibited by the magnetic field that's there, so they look darker uh, than the surroundings because they're cooler. So we've just been coming out of a solar minimum, and now I think we're in cycle 24? That's right. That right? So um, the number of sunspots um, over the roughly the past year has been increasing quite steeply, and... Uh, just this month there have been uh, two X-class solar flares uh, which is the first time for quite a few years now that there have been any solar flares of that magnitude at all. Could you explain to us what exactly an X-class solar flare is? Um, Solar flares are labelled with letters uh, (laughs) to indicate their um, intensity Um, and uh, I can't remember the exact order but I think it goes something like A, B, C... X. I may have missed out one. <laughs> There's an M in there somewhere. So they miss out the, mi- the yes, middle of the alphabet. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so if we're on solar cycle 24, that means that we must have started counting in the well, 1700s? That's right, yes. That's right. yes. Uh, in the 18th century, when they first started uh, measuring sunspots, uh, they started at cycle one when they realised that it was 11 years and have kept on counting ever since. (laughs) So we're now on to the 24th. But obviously the 11-year cycle uh, goes back with reconstructions that have been done based on cosmic rays trapped in ice cores. Um, (laughs) uh, They have been able to reconstruct the fact that the uh, solar cycle goes way back uh, something like 9,000 years. Wow, so we look in ice and we can know about the sun 9,000 years ago. Yes, it's, yeah, it's to do with uh, cosmic radioactive isotopes uh, which get embedded in ice cores which then build up and they're preserved there. So would there be more isotopes when the sun's active? Is that how you do it? With um, the... No, in fact it's related to the variation of the sun's magnetic field which is okay. another manifestation <laughs> of the solar activity which just happens to be proportional to the number of sunspots. And... Um, when the sun is more active, uh, the magnetic field of the sun is stronger and inhibited, inhibits cosmic rays coming in from outside the solar system. Um, so when activity is low, more cosmic rays get in and get trapped okay. in these ice deposits. I'm impressed that someone thought of that. It's a really weird thing I so it's a bit like counting rings in a tree, I exactly, guess. Exactly, yeah. It's, quite, it's exactly analogous to that. Tree rings are sometimes used to sort of um, 
um, monitor the temperature history. Yeah. And in your talk today, you said that there's something a bit unusual about solar cycle 23 that we've just come out of. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, well, it depends on what sort of time scale you look on. But uh, in the era going back of the last 40 years where we've had spacecraft measurements available to us to study the sun in much greater detail in the past, uh, this particular solar minimum that we've been looking at is dramatically different from all the others we've seen in the space age. One of the ways it showed up uh, initially is that uh, instead of finishing after 11 years, we, I think, expected cycle 24 to start taking off again in something like 2008. Um, It didn't really get going till 2010. So the end of solar cycle 23 was something like two years late. So 13 years rather than 11 I remember NAM two years ago, we had an interview with Mike Lockwood asking, why is the sun still quiet? But do we understand any physics behind that or any reasoning why this has been longer? Well, ultimately, it comes back to what is going inside the sun. There is uh, some very complicated dynamo (laughs) generating the uh, magnetic field inside the sun, which I don't think anyone fully understands how it works. But clearly it's the sun's magnetic field which is driving um, all the different phenomena which have shown unusual effects. In particular, I've been looking at the magnetic field um, out in space. Uh, I was involved in a space project called Ulysses, which has recently ended, but uh, it was a mission which lasted 19 years and flew over the poles of the sun three times and was able to measure... Uh, the strength of the magnetic field over the poles of the sun comparing the minima of cycle 22 and cycle 23 and what we observed with that was that the uh, strength of the magnetic field had dropped by a factor of third between the minimum of cycle 22 and the minimum of cycle 23 and comparing that with measurements that had been taken near the earth by other spacecraft going back further um, it was quite clear that that was unique to this minimum and not to any of the others over the last 40 years. So is it possible that maybe over 100 years or so there is a long-term variation as well, or is this just an anomaly? Um, when you start going back over 100 years, then you do indeed start seeing evidence in historical data that this sort of thing has occurred before. There was a minimum in sunspot number of a similar magnitude um, in the early 1800s which was known as the Dalton Minimum and uh, some of the reconstructions that have been done of of the solar magnetic field again you have to go back to analogous things to the tree (laughs) rings to do it but without going into detail the reconstructions back of the open solar magnetic field show that um, it got down to levels similar to now back in the early 1800s in the so-called Dalton Minimum. And if you go back even further into the 1700s, there was the so-called Maunder Minimum where sunspots disappeared altogether and the reconstruction showed that the strength of the um, magnetic field then was probably even less than it is now. I've got to wonder, when we're going so far back in history and you're relying on people looking through telescopes and counting the number of sunspots. How accurate is that? How well do you believe those measurements? I'm not an expert on the historical (laughs) sunspot data, but um, I think people have uh, 
have looked at it and yep. uh, who are more expert than I and have come back reasonably confident that indeed in the Mondor minimum there were effectively no sunspots for several solar cycles. And just to finish, uh, when will Solar Cycle 24 reach its peak? Um, well, that's... <laughs> you, roughly, you can, yeah, um, I think the sort of official line is sometime around 2013, but it is expected to probably be no more than half of the intensity that Solar Cycle 23 was. OK, well, thank you very much. That's very interesting. Not at all. <laughs> Thanks for that, Jen and Megan. And now we're getting into the odds and ends part of the show. So what's up this month? The Hubble Space Telescope had its 21st birthday in April. It's been observing the universe for almost all that time, I guess. It's had a contact lens fitted. Oh. It's well past its original operational lifetime. It's past yeah, I think its sell-by it's... date. No, it's not past its sell-by <laughs> date. It's still going. And to celebrate this, NASA released uh, one of... I suppose their favourite images, which was taken in December 2010, it's two interacting galaxies that kind of looks like a rose. And it's a really amazing image. I'd never seen it before, actually. One of the galaxies is sort of very swirly, and the other one is kind of stretched out like a stem. You can't see, but Mark's doing hand gestures to help you imagine that. <laughs> I'm sure you'll also put a nice picture on the website. So we, will, we will link to the picture in the show notes. Also, at the time of recording, um, Endeavour's last flight is scheduled for the 29th of April. It was previously scheduled for the 19th of April, and we mentioned it in the last show. Just in case people weren't listening on the last one, it will be taking up a nice particle physics experiment um, to measure cosmic rays, and it will be looking for antimatter and dark matter. And it will also be the last time that the shuttle astronauts will carry out a spacewalk. I'm getting a definite sense of deja vu about that particular item. <laughs> I think it was you who covered it in the last one. Yeah. We went into a bit more detail about the experiment that it's carrying as well, so if you want to know more about that, then check out the last show. I've also heard that this shuttle launch is going to be visible from the south of England. I can't remember where I read that, but maybe if people aren't watching the royal wedding on that day or had enough of street parties, um, you might have been able to see it. And if you did see it, then let us know, assuming that this launch actually happens. I feel like I jinx these because every time I talk about a future shuttle launch, it gets delayed. <laughs> okay, so now, apart from Endeavour, uh, what else can we see in the night sky in May? Let's hear from Ian and John. Well, the night sky for May 2011. And of course, fewer dark hours now, so we must make the most of them. But after sunset, the constellation Gemini is setting towards the southwest. And Leo holds pride of place in the south with its bright star Regulus. Between Germany and Leo is a fairly blank area of sky, but worth looking at particularly with binoculars because you have the constellation of Cancer, the crab, and within it, very close to its central brightish star, is the beehive cluster. Very nice to view with binoculars. Below Germany, you also have the tiny constellation of Canis Minor with just one bright star, Procyon. And then rising in the southeast is the constellation of Virgo, whose brightest star is Spica. Virgo is where, in fact, we can see the lovely planet Saturn, as we'll come across later. Though Virgo has got rather few bright stars, between Virgo and Leo lies a lovely region of the sky, which we call the realm of the galaxies. And with a small telescope under particularly dark skies, it's amazing how many galaxies can be seen. 
Many of the Messier objects lie in this region. It's looking towards what is called the Virgo supercluster, which has the Virgo cluster its heart, and we are on the outskirts, our little local group of galaxies is on the outskirts of that wonderful supercluster. But also look high overhead towards the north, and you'll see Ursa Major. Very nice constellation, lots of interesting objects within it, but also with binoculars, if you look at the central star of the three that make up the handle of the so-called plough, you'll see it's in fact a double star. And if you look with the telescope, you'll see that the brighter of those, in fact, is itself a double. So that's a rather nice thing to see with a small telescope. Well, what about the planets? Let's start with Jupiter. It passed behind the Sun on April the 6th, so is now visible in the pre-dawn sky when it rises shortly before the Sun. During the month, of course, it gradually rises earlier. And as we'll see in some of the highlights, we see a lovely parade of planets in the eastern horizon just before dawn. The magnitude stays pretty much the same throughout the month at minus 2.1. The angular size is about 33 arc seconds. So you could see quite a lot of detail, except for the fact it'll only be a few degrees above the horizon. And that means, of course, the atmosphere will degrade the image quite a bit. So it's probably not the best month to look at it in detail. What about Saturn? Well, that's a highlight of the month, really, as we'll come back to. It's an evening object. It actually reached opposition when it's basically due south at around midnight on April the 3rd and 4th. So during May, it's actually going to be well up into the southern sky and highest in elevation during the mid to late evening, ideal to make observations. As it's now going away from us a little bit, or rather we're going away from it perhaps, it starts the month with a magnitude of plus 0.5, and that decreases a little bit to about plus 0.7. Uh, compared to a year ago, the brightness is actually greater because the rings are opening out. They're now about 8 degrees from edge on. So that means there's a little bit more area to reflect light towards us. They span an angular size of 43 arc seconds, about double the 19 arc seconds of the disk. I looked at it the other night with a 6-inch telescope. You can now fairly easily see Cassini's division. It's a dark band that separates the two outer of the rings, the A and the B ring. The B is sometimes called the bright ring because it's the brightest of the rings. You'll also see with a small telescope quite easily Saturn's brightest moon, Titan, at magnitude plus 8. And given good conditions, uh, you might well pick up one or two of the other moons as well. Well, along with Jupiter and Mars, Mercury is visible low above the eastern horizon this month. It'll be so low, I'm pretty certain you'll need binoculars to spot it. About a month ago or so, I looked at Mercury uh, low above the horizon, or tried to find it, and even when we knew exactly where to look, we weren't able to see it with binoculars. But in fact, someone had the bright idea of actually taking a photograph, which I did. So it came up on a photograph, but my goodness, it was hard to see. So it may not be easy to spot, but with binoculars just before dawn, there's a lovely array of planets. Mercury is one. Maybe you'll have a chance to see it. Well, Mars has also emerged into the pre-dawn sky. The trouble is that at this time of year, the ecliptic, which is the line along which you see the planets because it represents the plane of our uh, solar system, it's the path of the sun across the sky, it's at a very shallow angle to the horizon. So even when the planets are somewhere away from the sun, 
their elevation is not in fact very great. So to see any of these planets, we're going to need a good low eastern horizon and probably for the fainter ones, a pair of binoculars. Well, Mars' magnitude is increasing slightly. It'll be about plus 1.3 this month. The angular size is four arc seconds, so you're not going to see any details, particularly, of course, you've got such a low elevation. So finally we come to Venus. Well, that's been a pre-dawn object for some months now, been very visible in the morning sky. Um, it's now getting a little bit closer to the sun. The magnitude at about minus 3.8 is the brightest object that we're going to see in that part of the sky. It's not high above the eastern horizon, as I've said. The angular size, as it gets uh, further beyond the sun's distance from us, is reducing. It's from 11.6 arc seconds at the beginning of the month down to about 10.6 by the end. But of course, at the same time, as it gets further behind the sun, more of the disk is illuminated. That goes up from 88% to 93%. And in fact, the magnitude stays precisely the same. The two effects compensate each other. So finally, what about some highlights of the month? Well, I've mentioned Saturn already. It's lying in the constellation of Virgo and closing in during the month to the star Porima, which I'll return back to in a minute. That's called Gamma Virginis, is its other name. The rings appear brighter than they have done for a bit, but it won't be until 2016 that they're basically at their widest again. So each year up to then, we'll see Saturn a bit brighter in the sky and the rings will be easier to observe. As I've said, you can certainly now see Cassini's division if the seeing, which relates to how turbulent the atmosphere is, is not too bad. As well as the largest moon Titan, a small telescope will easily show you certainly one of the bands in the, the northern hemisphere, in fact, a darker band that you see spanning around the disk. They're not nearly so prominent as on Jupiter, but in fact, it showed up pretty well the other night when I had a look. Now, I said it was getting close to Gamma Virginis, or Porima. It gets very, very close by the end of the month. It's actually, Porima is made up of two identical stars, each of magnitude 3.5. Way back around the turn of the century, they were separated by just six arc seconds, and you could easily split them with a small telescope. But of course, as they go around each other, the angular separation changes. And around 2005, they were so close, they could barely be split. But this spring, the two stars should be separated by about 1.7 arc seconds, which means, again under reasonably good seeing, a small telescope should split it into two. So if you've looked at Saturn, just move a little bit to the right and have a look at uh, Porima, see if you can split it into two stars. But we do have a meteor shower this month, and the conditions are quite good. Uh, it's on May the 6th, which is just three days after new moon. So there'll be no moon in the sky, which sometimes, of course, its light will totally block out faint meteors. The shower is called the Eta Aquarids, and that implies that the radiant, that's from where the meteors appear to diverge from, is in the constellation of Aquarius. Now that's actually pretty low down for us at our northern latitudes, so it doesn't rise very far above the sky, which means it will only see the meteors that are radiating sort of into half the sky, not the whole of it. Not to worry, if you look east-southeast before dawn, perhaps about four o'clock on May the 6th, you should be able to spot Aquarius. Have a look and see if you just see any bright streaks across the sky coming upwards from the east-southeastern horizon, they will be the Eta Aquarids.
We should see, if it were dark and clear, about 25 meteors an hour at our northern latitudes, which isn't too bad. Then, rather interestingly, result, these little dust particles that come into the atmosphere and burn up, result from the comet Halley. And uh, the dust particles are released as Halley goes around the sun, as it lasted in about 1985-86, and that forms what's called the dust tail. Over time, the dust in the dust tail spreads out along the orbit. So each time the Earth crosses the orbit of a periodic comet like that, those little dust particles come into the atmosphere and burn up, and we see what I rather like to call shooting stars. So, at the very end of the month, May 29th to 31st, as I've said, these four planets... Mercury, Jupiter, Venus and Mars are all visible in the pre-dawn sky. And if you go on the night sky, two words into Google, you'll find little pictures showing you where they are. Again, we have a thin crescent moon each night nearer the horizon. And below that, we will see the planets. Jupiter is now highest in the sky and towards the south. Lying in line down towards the horizon, first Mars, then Venus, and finally, just above the horizon, Mercury. So, a chance to see four planets all together in the morning sky, along with a thin crescent moon. There must be a rather nice photograph there somewhere, as long as there's not too much haze in the sky to mean the brightness of the fainter of these planets isn't so good. Well, as I said, rather fewer hours to observe this month, but maybe one or two nice things to look at, so happy hunting. Kia ora and welcome to the May Jodcast from the Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. May and June are great months for observing the most distant objects in our night sky, galaxies. The northern and southern sky is sparse of bright stars as we look away from the Milky Way which runs east-west during our evening sky. For many years the Milky Way was believed to be the entire universe and nothing existed outside of it. Early astronomers tried to plot the shape and size of the universe by measuring the number of stars and estimating their distance by their brightness. William Herschel was one such astronomer. He, along with others, noticed fuzzy shapes that they called nebulae. They thought they were either star clusters that their telescopes could not resolve, or were, in the case of spiral structures, forming solar systems. As telescopes became more and more powerful and of better quality, many clusters along the Milky Way were in fact found to be star clusters, or clusters embedded in luminous clouds of material. Many of the nebulae away from the plane of the Milky Way could still not be resolved as individual stars. It wasn't until the 1930s that the distance to these nebulae could be estimated. Using the light curve of Seaford variable stars observed in the Great Nebula in Andromeda, as it was then known, this nebula turned out to be a galaxy of millions of stars and millions of light years away. A large number of amateur astronomers are involved in long-term observation programs of variable stars and supernovae hunts. These help further refine the distances to galaxies. In our southern sky, the two closest galaxies visible to us are the small and the large Magellanic Clouds. As both sit near the South Celestial Pole, they are circumpolar throughout Aotearoa, New Zealand. Both can be seen on a clear, moonless night and may even be seen in suburban skies. Galaxies come in a variety of classifications, spiral, elliptical, irregular and a number of subgroups in each classification. 
An interesting elliptical galaxy that can be seen in small telescopes is Centaurus A, or NGC 5128. This galaxy, the fifth brightest in our night sky, can be found 4 degrees north of the naked eye globular cluster Omega Centauri. In small telescopes it appears as a faint oval with a dark band running lengthways along the oval shape. This dark band has given rise to its nickname as the Hamburger Galaxy. Astronomers are unsure as to what is actually happening in this galaxy. Current theory is that it's been in the process of absorbing a smaller spiral galaxy. This galaxy is about 15 million light years away and eagle-eyed observer Stephen James Amira has managed to see this galaxy with his unaided eye. Why don't you give it a go? Another southern galaxy is NGC 253, known as the Sculptor or Silver Dollar Galaxy, which shines at 8th magnitude and is 11 million light-years away. Visible in binoculars from a dark sky location, small telescopes will reveal it as an oval bulge with a bright nucleus. Larger telescopes may reveal dark bands in its disk. Nearby and visible in a 100mm telescope is the globular cluster NGC 288. Moving toward the northern sky is a lovely galaxy called M104, known as the Sombrero Galaxy, and it is in the constellation of Virgo. Visible in 7x50 binoculars as a bright patch, a 100mm or greater telescope will reveal more of the galaxy's shape. A 300mm telescope will reveal the dark lane that makes the galaxy resemble the shape of a sombrero. Virgo is home to a large number of galaxies within range of medium-sized telescopes. These galaxies are part of the greater Virgo cluster that contains over 1,300 individual galaxies. The largest in the cluster is called M87 and shines at magnitude 10. The total estimated mass of this galaxy may be up to 200 times that of our own. Long exposure images of M87 reveal a jet of material escaping from the core. This jet is believed to be the material that is made of the matter being ejected by a supermassive black hole at the centre. Virgo is one of the zodiac constellations and the Sun moves in front of the constellation during mid-September to late October. It is the second largest constellation in the night sky after Hydra, the snake. In Greek mythology, Virgo is associated with the goddess of wheat. The brightest star in Virgo is Spica, the 15th brightest in our night sky. It is a blue giant star 260 light years away from us and this star is variable and has a close companion. There are a number of bright stars in Virgo that collectively form a large rectangular shape. To date, 26 planets have been found orbiting 20 individual stars in Virgo, the most in any constellation. 61 Virginis has a system of three planets in the range from 5 to 25 times the mass of our own planet Earth. It is in Virgo that we find the only planet visible in our evening sky, Saturn. Well placed for early observing, Saturn and its rings always make for spectacular viewing. With the rings still thin, it is a good opportunity to spot some of the smaller and fainter moons. The other bright planets are still too close to the Sun to be easily seen. Rising later in the evening is the constellation of Capricorn, which is playing host to the brightest asteroid Vesta. Discovered in 1807 by Heinrich Olbers, who had previously discovered an asteroid in 1802 named Pallas. For a number of years, the asteroids Ceres, Vesta, Pallas and Juno were all known as planets with their own planetary symbol. But following the discovery of a large number of fainter asteroids, they were collectively relegated to becoming asteroids as well. Recently, with the creation of category of dwarf planets, the largest asteroid series has been bumped up the order to become a dwarf planet. Vesta is still rated as an asteroid and has a diameter of 530 kilometers and it contains an estimated 9% of the total mass of the asteroid belt. In July of this year, the Dawn spacecraft will go into orbit around this interesting object and will study it for about a year before moving on to Ceres. Over 200 meteorites discovered on Earth have a composition that points to them coming from Vesta.
Earth-based observations have found a large crater in the southern hemisphere of this asteroid, and this crater may be the source of these meteorites. Crux, the southern cross, is high overhead in our evening sky with the pointers nearby. The region around Carina, the keel and Vila the sails are home to a number of bright stars, clusters and nebulae that can be viewed with unaided eye, binoculars or telescope. Scorpius and Sagittarius rise in the east after sunset. By late evening they are well above the horizon and host to a number of beautiful and interesting objects which we'll look at in next month's Jodcast. In the morning sky, Venus is still the brilliant morning star and there will be a number of conjunctions with other planets during May. Mars, Mercury and Jupiter all in the early morning sky. May 2nd sees Jupiter and Mars close together. May the 12th sees Jupiter and Venus and Mercury in conjunction. May 22nd will see Mercury, Venus, Mars and Jupiter together, now higher in the morning sky. Many thanks for listening to our Jodcast and we hope that you have clear skies and great observing. Thanks for that Ian and John and now we get on to the feedback part of the show. So what have we got? Well, first, uh, we want to say we're very sorry for anyone who get confused by the Spanish episode last uh, episode. Yes, yes, it was an April Fool. <laughs> yes, we did leave it for too long. But very strict rules about these things. Well, this is a thing. In the UK, April Fools are only meant to happen until midday. But in America, they go on all day. According fr- to Wikipedia. In France, too. Um, because in our department, they go on for two days, three days. <laughs> <laughs> because we don't want to stop the fun. Yeah. Sorry to anyone who got a bit annoyed that the website was in Spanish for an extra day. But um, unfortunately, we do have real lives. And the 2nd of April was a Saturday. So we weren't around to uh, change it. And we also found a mistake in the English version that obviously we don't want to put out a show with wrong information. So that delayed us by a day. So, yes, I hope everyone enjoyed the Spanish episode and wasn't too confused. We won't name and shame those who emailed us asking what was going on. But I'm glad there were some people that fell for it because that all made it all worthwhile. <laughs> and, and we're not really sorry because we enjoyed it. Yes. We received a few very nice postcards. Actually, four very nice postcards. Well, two of them were from Jen. Yay! I just wanted to show off that I've been travelling. Yes. Jen sent us a nice postcard from India and... Another nice postcard from Finland with a lot of very pretty pictures of Aurora Borealis. Did Unfortunately, you see any? no. The, oh. the night that there was a lot of activity, it was completely clouded out. And it was also still light at midnight. So Yeah, but no you chance. sent us lots of pretty pictures on a postcard, so yeah. that makes up for it. We also have a postcard from uh, Robert of the Veritas Telescope and a postcard from Bill of a very nice, I would guess, sunset or maybe sunrise uh, over the Keck Telescope in uh, Hawaii. We've had emails from Frank Bonner and Adrian Chalinor, who both enjoyed the Spanish episode and its counterpart. Frank said it would do wonders for improving his Spanish. He seems to expect one every fortnight. Uh, Frank, that's not going to happen. And Adrian particularly liked the witticism, nobody expects a Spanish Inquisition, which I'm particularly pleased about, and it made him laugh out loud on the train, which is a nice image. So now for an update on the forum... Stuart has started a thread to keep track of your Jod picks, so keep sending those in. And we've had a question from Earth Units, who was um, commenting on Megan's segment, so I'll put it to you guys to see if anyone can come up with an answer. If the universe is expanding faster than it was in the past, does that mean that Hubble's constant is a variable? Right, so I answered this on the forum, um, basically saying that 
yes, Hubble's constant isn't a constant. It's a variable of time. So when the universe was expanding faster in the past, it was a different value. That then started a discussion about frames of reference and what is now. <laughs> so if you want to um, join in on those discussions, head to the forum. But I think we better put this question to Tim in a later episode so he can give a better answer than I can. And over on Twitter, Stuart has informed us that the Jogcast has 107 hours, 49 minutes and 40 seconds of published audio, not including this episode. (laughs) We didn't do anything for our 100-hour anniversary. We could try and work out when that was and have a retro (laughs) celebration. Maybe we should just wait for... A thousand hours? A thousand hours is going a bit far, maybe 200. The big Mm -hmm. 200. Yeah. Yeah. And also on Twitter, thank you to everyone as usual for your retweets and your follow suggestions on Friday. Saying thanks for your follow Fridays just sounds a little bit weird. But yes, keep them up. Also, thank you to Thomas, Kim, Susan, Trevor and Philip for bringing the Jodcast Facebook page back to life. Yay! That's awesome. Well done. I especially like Trevor's quote saying that the Jotcast is the best astronomy podcast in the galaxy, uh, unless you pick up a better one via the telescope. I'll <laughs> listen for it and I'll let you know. Finally, over on Flickr, I had a look at some of the photos in the group and there's some really good ones. I thought I'd mention a few. Terry Tedor has a really nice picture of the Aurora in Alaska, which just made me jealous that I missed it. Dances with Light has a picture of the Keck telescopes either at sunrise or sunset. I guess that's from Bill who sent us the postcard, again, of sunrise or sunset. <laughs> and Set Me 3 put up a really nice picture of Earthshine on the moon. So if you have any astronomical pictures, upload them to Flickr and maybe we'll make this a regular segment. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jobcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. Via Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And the address for all your lovely postcards is on the website. It's making us feel very summery. So thanks to Jonathan Fay, Bob Forthis... David Hogg, Rob Hollow, Meg Schramm, Jill Tarter, and John Wormsley for the interviews. I'd like to say a massive thank you to Robert Massey and everyone at the Royal Astronomical Society for organising the National Astronomy Meeting and for letting us go as press and use the press room and everything like that. So huge thank you to you. The editors for this show were Jen Gupta, Megan Argo, Claire Brotherton, Melanie Gendre, Stuart Lowe, Kat Maguire and Mark Perver. And the producer was Jen Gupta. So until next time... Jod on. Bye. 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 This is Mark Thompson, and you've been listening to the Jodcast Astronomy for the People.